Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I am excited to be with you this Sunday as we continue our study in the book of Romans. We have been plowing through this book since probably November, October, November, and we've been going pretty quickly through some things, and then there have been other spots where we've kind of taken our time, and Romans 9 is where we are now. And Romans 9 is going to be a bit slower. If you remember, we did Romans 2 and 3 almost in a chunk. We did 2 and 1 go, and we did 3 and 1 go, and but we get to Romans 9. There's a lot to unpack in the book of Romans, and in keeping with our theme of reclaiming the Bible, of bringing the Bible back to the forefront, to the center of our thinking and our worship, and exalting Christ in the process, we have to give it a little more time. And I'm excited to be digging into Romans 9. Um, Romans 9 is a chapter that there's a lot of disagreement on, there's a lot of contention as to how to rightly interpret it, but it's an important one. And it brings us into another transitionary block of Romans. Romans can easily be broken down into four sections. But uh, that's a conversation for, the, for another time. So, just to recap Romans a little bit. Paul has stated at great length the doctrines of the gospel. He's talked about sin. He's talked about faith. He's talked about the necessity of the Holy Spirit changing the way we think. The way that we pursue God. And now Paul directs his attention in Romans 9-11 through 11 to what is often called redemptive history. And what Paul is explaining is how God has related to his people through ages past and how he relates to them now. Paul referenced election and predestination, those hot-button words, in Romans 8. Towards the end there, those he foreknew, he also predestined. But now Paul seeks to give more time to the details of what he referenced in Romans 8. Election is a topic that is hotly contested in our church today. Church history really is full of examples of debates over the biblical viability of what has become um, nicknamed the Calvinist view. If you go through church history, this is something that has been debated in virtually every era of the church. We had Augustine doing battle with this in the 4th century. We had Martin Luther and John Calvin in the 
in the 1500s. You had a resurgence of it around the 1800s. It's all in there. This is something, this is a conversation that has been had in literally every generation. But my aim today is not to convert anyone to a five-point Calvinist. It is not a term I generally use, and while I affirm what is called the Calvinist view, I don't typically stick the label of Calvinist on myself unless it's a joke. My aim, ultimately, with going through Romans 9, is to explain what the Bible does say as simply and sufficiently as I can, to exalt Christ in this chapter, to let the, the Word of God speak for itself. And ultimately, this is a concept that ties into the gospel and the way that God saves. This is not a subject for academic refinement. Okay, Paul wrote this letter to a church, not a seminary. And that said, whatever we glean from the book of Romans has relevance to the church of Jesus Christ first and foremost. And while we can certainly apply it to the seminary student, first and foremost, Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to the body of believers, not just the ones studying to be pastors. And that mindset we have to maintain as we go into Romans 9, that this is for the whole church. And that undergirds everything that we learn, everything we read in the book of Romans, that this is for the whole church. And not just the pastors, not just the theologians, it's for the whole church. And so that said, let us dive into the first couple of verses in this hard chapter of Scripture. And so we will start with verses 1 through 3. We will only cover eight verses today. As I said, we'll have to go a little bit slower. But Romans 9, verses 1 through 3 says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Jews took vows very seriously. For Paul to vow in Christ, for him to say, God is my witness in the Holy Spirit like that, that is weight. For Paul to vow in Christ is something which would bear a lot of weight with the members of his audience that were Jews. Paul's writing to a mixture audience. The Church of Rome was Jews and Gentiles alike. But that is something that would have resonated with um, the Jews in his audience. Because when you make a vow in Jewish culture, that's important because your word is your bond. That's something they take very seriously, much like we do in the courtroom in modern America. When you um, take that oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, there is a lot of weight in that. And so if it comes that you broke that vow, that you did not tell the truth, that is a very real thing. We call that perjury. And actually it goes back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That was about legality. That in a vow scenario you're held to that it says in ecclesiastes chapter 5 when you vow a vow to god do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you vow it is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay 
Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. As it says in Hebrew, hebel, vapor, here one minute, gone the next. But God is the one you must fear. So it's important that he's taking this, that he's making such a bold statement that he is vowing to tell the truth in Christ. Because it's very obvious that when you make a vow, you have to mean that. There are many examples in the Old Testament of Jewish men who took a vow while being deceived and were bound to that, that vow they made. Well, and so Paul is affirming that he is speaking as one who is in Christ. He is speaking these things by the power of God. He's not pushing an agenda. What Paul is preparing to say is something that Jews would likely have bristled at to some extent. But he is encouraging them to receive it in grace and understanding. <clears throat> For he speaks not of himself, but by God. In a way, he is affirming what he said in the opening verses of this letter. Romans 1, 8-12 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And again, he says, God is my witness. Now, this is a recurring theme. And so he's affirming that this is something that should be taken seriously. Um, in his commentary on the, on the book of Romans, Catholic writer Peter Ablard writes, Lest the preceding greeting of the epistle seem produced more by the occasion and custom of writing epistles than by the inner disposition of charity. With how much charity does he embrace them when he adds this, saying that first, that is especially, he gives thanks to God for the conversion and faith of the Romans, since that had to be done for all those converted. Indeed, it was necessary that the apostle first show the gratitude which he held for them, so that when he later reproved them seriously, they might understand that it was done out of love. So, Paul is, in that, those early verses, set up that he was writing this letter out of love for the body. So that when he came to those hard topics, that was the foundation, was reproving the church in love. Paul has a burden for the Jews, for his kinsmen. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He has a burden for the Jews, his kinsmen. Paul was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. He had common ancestry with the Jews. There's common ground there. And he's appealing to this. The Jews have a special place in Paul's heart. These are his people. This is, this is what he knows. These are his people. This is his lineage. And they have a special place in his heart, such that Paul is willing to be cut off from Christ if it would secure salvation for his people.
Of course, we know that this is an impossibility, and Paul did as well. You can't just be cut off from Christ. Um, he is saved, and he will always be in Christ. Now, Paul cannot really be cut off from Christ, but he's saying that if it were possible that I be cut off from Christ in order to secure the salvation of my brothers, I would do it. He would not spare himself if it meant bringing the Jews to faith. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I, may, that I might win more of them. But he has a burden for what he's about to say. He's building up for what he's about to lay out. And we get to verse 4. And it says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Jews were the original recipients of the promises of God. Like we read in those first couple chapters of Roman, what benefit do the Jews have? They were given the oracles of God, the promises of God. All the benefits of God were initiated towards the Jews. God revealed himself. He revealed his character. He revealed his covenant and countless other things first to the Jews. He brought the Messiah into the world through their lineage. The gospel was first promised and revealed by faith to the Jews. That's why it says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God, which is to say the way by, me, by which God declares is righteous, is revealed by faith and to faith, from faith and to faith. The Jews were the original recipients of all, that, all these things. The character of God, the nature of God, the covenant of God. They, they reap those benefits thousands of years beforehand. He brought the Messiah into the world through the, the Jews, through the tribe of Judah. The Israelites are like his child. The Jews long understood Israel to be a son of God, not in a divine way, but that they were like his children. When, it read, when we read in Psalm 2, a lot of times when we read Psalm 2, we think about the magistrate. We think about them honoring God. But when the Jews read Psalm 2, they understood it a little differently. So when it says in Psalm 2, verse 7, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We like to read that. We like to read Psalm 2 as post-mill Christians. When you get into the post-millennial camp, there's a very common way that this is read. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but I, there are layers to Scripture. There are Things work on more than one level often, oftentimes. And so while we read this as a post-mill psalm, we read this about the nations bowing before God, the Jews long understood this passage to be true of every king of Israel, that they were made a lowercase s son of God. 
that Israel had a familial connection to God through the king. This is part of why Christ was born in the city of David. They had a familial connection now to the Savior. It says in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you, which is to say purchased you, out of the house of bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. They had that, they had a familial connection to God. God had made them his people. That they were, Israel was like an adopted child of God. This is his people. These are his kids. And this is what, this is the backdrop here for some of what Paul's going to get into. But long story short, God chose Israel out of the world. He called them out of the world to be his people, to be his children, to be the recipients of his promises, of his covenant, and of him. Thomas Schreiner writes that the Lord elected Israel because of his love for her. And the reason given for the Lord's love is his love. In other words, no quality in Israel endeared the nation to the Lord. The Lord set his sovereign love upon Israel because it was his good pleasure to do so. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And Israel received this. They received the object of God's love because of God's love, if that makes sense. That there is a duality here that God gave, he lavished his love upon Israel because of his love. But we have a problem here. If the Jews were God's people, they were his family, they were the recipients of his covenant. There's an issue here because the Jews handed Christ over to be crucified. And that's not a fact the apostles would gloss over. They were brutally honest about that. Acts chapter 2 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, themselves, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Brings So, they crucified Christ. They crucified their own. The Jews didn't just idly sit by. They handed him over to me. Pilate wanted to release him. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So if Israel holds a special place with God, why did they crucify the Son? And we find that answer in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not because what God has revealed through his word couldn't deliver. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That would have been a weird statement for Paul. Not all of Israel is Israel? What, what does that mean? So if Israel holds a special place with God, why did they crucify the Son? Because not all Israelites are truly Israelites. Which forces us to ask the question, who then is Israel? And on that, Matthew Henry provides some insight as we wrestle with this idea, who is Israel? Many that descended from the loins of Abraham and Jacob and were of that people who were surnamed by the name of Israel, yet were very far from being Israelites indeed, interested in the saving benefits of the new covenant. They are not really Israel that are so in name and profession. It does not follow that because they are the seed of Abraham, therefore they must needs be the children of God, though they themselves fancied so, boasted much of and built much upon their relation to Abraham. Matthew 3, 9 and John 8, 38 and 39. But it does not follow. Grace does not run in the blood, nor are saving benefits inseparably annexed to eternal church privileges, though it is common for people thus to stretch the meaning of God's promise to bolster themselves up in vain hope. In short, Israel was never a birthright scenario because grace doesn't run in the blood, he says. So there's got to be something different. It's, we're not talking about ancestry. But there's a, a different meaning for who is actually Israel that goes beyond your birthright. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So it's not a birthright scenario, but we're talking about God's relation to the individual. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive every one of you this day. I quote the King James there because of the way it renders it. What's interesting about the Deuteron about the King James is the use of pronouns. Um, when we read statements with ye as opposed to you, there's a reason that they distinguish between you and ye. Because you is plural, but ye is singular. When we read phrases like ye and thee and thou, in the Bible, God is talking to an individual. But when he says you, he is talking plural, a group of people. It's like 
y'all in the South these days. So when we read, ye that cleave unto the Lord are alive, every one of you this day then, the individual that cleaves to God will be alive. And he distinguishes that it's the individual that clings to God. But everyone in the group who does this shall live, is what he's saying. He made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. And upon earth he showed thee his great fire. And thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt to drive out nations from before thee greater and mightier than thou art, to bring thee in, to give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. That's a very intimate statement that he's not talking about Israel. He's talking about individuals. And there's a very intimate way that he's articulating it, that there is something different, that God speaks to the individual as well as the nation. So when we read that not all of those who are Israel are Israel, it's because what makes one Israel has to do with the individual relationship to God, not the nation itself. It's not being born in the right place at the right time. It's all about what God has done in your heart. Dr. Steve Lawson makes this comment regarding the the content of Deuteronomy. And he writes, while no unregenerate, that is unsaved, um, of the world, man, can choose God. He has cho chosen many sinners to be saved through his grace. According to his infinite mercy, God has graciously elected many to be his people. This is the biblical truth of sovereign election. Before the foundation of the world, God chose his elect long before any person chose him. God initiates that relationship. Not every person born in Israel is counted in the covenant of grace because it's about you and God. Only those that God has chosen unto life, to use that phra phrasing. God chose Israel to be his nation, and he chose among them to save by his love. Earlier we saw that the Israelites were seen as the children of God to some extent. And that is the way it plays out with the individual as well. That it's not just Israel is the son of God, but Israel is the sons of God. One of my favorite pastors to listen to is a gentleman in the name of, by the name of Conrad Mbewe over in Zambia. And he explains this concept this way. Before time had begun, when he chose us, he predetermined the end to which we will finally land. And that end is that we will be sons in his family forever. We must celebrate the fact that our election is out of love and towards a predetermined end. The true Israel is composed of all the people of the earth that God has taken as his own. When the Bible talks about election... It's not a cold, dead orthodoxy. It is the way that God brings people into his family from unlikely places. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, 
he's introducing himself to the church. And so he writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, because it's all the same. We are all saved by the same gospel, the same God, the same Christ. And we all stand as equals in the family of God. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, being the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So those who come to Christ, those who come to faith, Jew and Gentile, have equal standing, not just with each other, but with the apostles as well. That we are all, there's not a hierarchy in the kingdom of God except for between man and God. God is on the throne, but those of us who are saved by his grace are saved by the same grace. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, God is adopting from all backgrounds all nations, all cultures, into the same family. Not because of what we bring to the table, but because of the love that is in God. And that love that is in God changes us on the inside. As we read in Romans 8, that no one in the flesh can please God, but those who put the death of the flesh by the Spirit shall live. And that if we live by the Spirit, we will live. And this was promised to us in the Old Testament to the Jews. It says in Isaiah 65, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah, and an in inheritor of my mountains. And mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. So what he's, what Isaiah is prophesying there is Israel has fallen. Israel is going to be handed over to their enemies and they will be the footstool of the nations for a time. But they will come back. When we read the prophets, the prophets are always talking about the judgment of Israel, but also about the preservation of a remnant. That there will be those few that are preserved by God. Why? Because they are the true Israel. They are those that God has saved on an individual level and brought into their fam into his family. And he says he will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, which is to say a son out of Jacob. And the elect shall inherit it. That seed is Christ. And the, the elect are those who inherit Christ, those who are joined to Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, it says in Romans. And that is what we come into because of the love of God. It says in Hosea chapter 2, And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. 
and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. That he is going to, God is declaring that he is going to bring the Gentiles into his family. That there, there's going to come a time where the Gentiles worship the same God as the Jews. Worship the same God as the Jews in the same place. That we're going to be brought into that same saving relationship with God. This is, there is so much weight here that we are all in God's family. His wonderful, perfect family. Verse 8 says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This means that it's not the children of the flesh, which is to say human birth that makes one a child of God, but the children of the promise, the what is the promise? The promise is Christ. It says in Galatians 4, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. The true Israel is those born of the promise of God. Now promise is the promise of a redeemer. Christ is the promise by which all peoples can be adopted into the perfect family of God. It says in John 1, He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So if it all depends on God's doing, how do I know if I'm one of those, those people? How do I know that I'm part of this? That, that's a very good question. One of the common questions that is raised when you read about things like election, about God choosing from the foundation of the world, is how would we know? Is there assurance of that? Absolutely. So, And if it all depends on God's doing, then there's nothing I can do to mess it up. I cannot lose this. If it was up to me, if I could bring about my salvation, I could lose my salvation. But the fact that it's of God because everything God does is eternal and settled in the heavens. And so when people ask, how can I know if I'm one of the elect, to use that phrasing, how can I know if I am one of Israel, of the true, of the gospel Israel? I would direct you to 1 John. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. That we are born of God when there's something new in us that wasn't there before. Romans 8 tells us that we are being controlled by the Spirit if in fact we are in Christ. And that those who live according to the flesh, to sinful desires, cannot please God. But those who operate in the Spirit are the sons of God. We pursue God because of the change he has wrought within us. Romans 8.29 says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So if you would like to know who is the elect, if you are part of that true Israel, one of the best ways is, are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Are you becoming Christ-like? Are you being sanctified? 
our predestination is described in masculine terms. Like in, in this passage, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. It says in Ephesians that we are predestined to adoption as sons. And this, it's described in masculine terms like that because in the Greek context, only sons received an inheritance. We are adopted as sons and made heirs and recipients of all that is in God. Not in a way that we become God, but we will receive his love, his grace, joy, his peace, countless other blessings in a vast and innumerable abundance. It says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What does this all mean? This, this concept of being chosen by God before I was born. What, what does this mean? It means that we belong to God. That when we come to Christ, in faith and repentance, we are adopted into his family as sons, sons who will receive an inheritance, and we will dwell with God forever in a perfect environment, and we will know him perfectly when that sinful nature is stripped away, and we will know God as he is, without agendas, without misrepresentations, without deception, we will know God as he is, and all will know God. It could be best summed up in the words of Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. This concept of predestination can be summed up in this way. When we were dead in our sins, God took us as his own and adopted us into his family. And everything we do now flows from our standing as his adopted children. We become the gospel Israel, if you will. We are his. And there's that doesn't cover every question, I'm aware. I don't believe that we can truly understand this idea of being predestined from before the foundations of the world. I think we can have a very basic grasp of it, but I don't think we can – I don't think our minds are meant to understand the whole inner workings of it. And Paul spends a good while um, giving us some clarity on it, and he will take very much a Q&A approach to explaining it. But ultimately what this is is the way that God brings us into his family, that God has been – setting things in motion to bring you into his fold from before you were born. And that's pretty incredible. I, I pray that this has spoken to you, that this has been, this is not seen in an antagonistic light, that this is, this helps see, see, see the glorious wealth of the gospel. That God did all the work not because we were deserving, not because we were owed something, but because God poured out his love upon us 
and he made us who were not his people to be his people. We are his. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab, links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written. That's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of his holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.